I invite you to turn from there back to the book of Genesis, chapter 21, for our text for today. Genesis chapter 21, the passage that Brother Dewey just read in Galatians, uh, allegorically takes the passage that we have here in Genesis today and applies it to a human dilemma that we, I think, will have to say, honestly, struggle with ourselves, each of us, uh, at various times and in various ways. And we'll seek the help of the Spirit of the Lord today uh, to help us understand where we might be individually and even collectively in regards to some of these issues. Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 21. I've entitled the message, One Promise, Two Sons. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. 
And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, as we read the scriptures, the words that you've given to us, we see some remarkable things. First of all, the way you guided and cared for your people throughout history. The way you provided for their needs. The way you both made promises and then faithfully kept those promises that you made. We also see that there's a consistency about the way you work in the world with humanity. The kind of consistency that when we read the stories in the Old Testament, we see that the apostles in the New Testament take those stories and teach us other truths and greater truths about how it is you want to work in our lives today as your people. And there's this deep and rich consistency between the Old Testament stories and the more didactic teachings of the New Testament. And Father, we need the instruction, the illumination of your Holy Spirit to be able to see ourselves as you do in light of these truths. And Lord, you have promised that where your word is taught, it can bring forth fruit. And so we ask that according to your promise, you would be here today that your words would be carried to the hearts and minds of all who are here today, that your Holy Spirit would shine a light into our minds, into our hearts, a light that would bring understanding, a light that would bring conviction, a, life that would, a light that would bring peace, and ultimately redemption. For the glory of your Son, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. We continue this study of Genesis, particularly in this section, the life and times of the father of faith, Abraham. And the recent sketches that we've been looking at have been in many ways disappointing. The man of faith has not been demonstrating the world's richest faith, but so often has been putting on display his faltering, even failing humanity. We see the father of faith vacillating between bold, faith-inspired intervention and intercession as a prophet, priest, and king to, at times, a very human and faltering man of faith that compromises the promise and plan of God. And while we identify with Abraham sometimes in those moments, we also feel a sense of loss and regret that this man of faith, this man of God, would fail in these kinds of ways. But the theme that runs through here is the promise of God that is just sure and constant. God makes promises and then God keeps his promise. Men and women of faith ebb and flow, come and go, falter and fail, Succeed and prosper, 
And yet God is the one constant assurance that what he has promised to perform, he will perform. And these people of faith keep coming back to him in renewed faith. The very specific situation here is God has promised to establish a people, a nation, not just any nation, but a great nation through whom the peoples of the world would be blessed. And he promised to do that through this man Abraham and his wife Sarah. The problem is they're now nearly 100 years old. Sarah, 90. Abraham, 100. And I, I'm picturing here how David Burkholder, coming up on his 80th birthday this week, how he might think about maybe having a son 20 years from now, kind of starting over. I, I don't think there'd be a lot of excitement at that idea. If it did happen, I think we'd have a similarity to what happened here, some hilarity. I, I, could, just, I could just picture Elizabeth laughing about this. You've got to be kidding. This is crazy. David scratching his head. Abraham, 100 years old. Sarah, 90 years old. But as God always does, he arrives, fulfills his promise in the exact timing of his choosing. He has a time. And his time is not necessarily our time. But it's his time. And often, it's so distinctly not our time that it becomes apparently a very God thing. Had God not done it, it simply wouldn't have happened. And so God uses this uh, throughout history, this issue of timing. God timing as a way of putting on display his glory. So that, as the Apostle Paul later says, so that it's obviously not an Abraham and Sarah thing. It's something God has done. I don't think there was a question in anyone's mind. This just doesn't happen. But God has fulfilled his promise. And the wisdom and glory of God is once again put on display. While the first part of this story is filled with that kind of celebratory joy and laughter, the second half of this story is filled with sorrow and weeping. One promise, two sons. One, as the Apostle Paul says several times, the son of promise. The other, a son of the flesh. Son of promise, son of the flesh. And I want you to note the contrasts between these two sons. Isaac, the son of promise, he says, is born to a free woman. Ishmael, the son of the flesh, born to a slave woman. Isaac, the son of promise, born miraculously, according to the promise of God. A promise God had made many, many years before. Ishmael, born as a result of some human intervention, trying to assure an outcome that God had promised in a way that kind of brought some tragic results. Born according to the scheming, conniving of the human flesh. 
Isaac, the son of promise, at his birth, brings laughter. In fact, is the name Isaac means laughter. And it's what God told Abraham to name his son. Name him Isaac when he is born. And I don't think this is a bad kind of laughter. You know, there are multiple kinds of laughter, and I think I could almost preach a sermon on laughter uh, just out of this passage. But this is a laughter of just amazement, wonder. What else do you do but laugh? And they laughed. And I think the joy of God was put on display in that laughter, in that celebration. The birth of Ishmael may have brought some joy, but if you read back through the story, immediately Ishmael's mother switches from being a humble, serving servant to carrying a bit of an attitude toward her mistress because she is now the legitimate mother of the apparent heir to Abraham. There's strife in the household immediately at his birth. And ultimately, Ishmael brings great weeping. A bitter relationship develops between Ishmael, Isaac, and their descendants that has brought much sorrow and weeping into the world. And we might add, even to this day. The son of promise is then persecuted by the one who is born according to the flesh. Ishmael begins to taunt the son of promise. The son of the flesh, Ishmael, becomes the persecutor. And he persecutes and torments the one born according to the Spirit. The one born by the power of God according to promise. Isaac, the son of promise, faces in the very next chapter the test of death by a father who places him on the altar of sacrifice. Ishmael also faces the test of death in this very passage, but it's the death of exile. A, the threat of death from being cut off from the provision and care of the Father while he's in exile and wandering in the wilderness. Isaac, the son of promise, becomes an Old Testament representative of Jesus who was also a son of promise, miraculously born by the power of God. Ishmael becomes a representative of human endeavor and striving apart from the grace and promise of God, according to human strategy, human endeavor, human attempt. Isaac, the son of promise, is the one through whom God will ultimately provide salvation. Ishmael, the son of the flesh, is the one through whom a great nation would be established because of the promise of God. but would be at the center of much conflict and suffering in the world. But the grace of God is not completely absent even there. And I pondered, I pondered and considered while studying this, every time a descendant of Ishmael today 
comes to faith in Jesus Christ, comes to belong to the family of God. It's a sign of God's gracious care and provision, even for those works wrought in the flesh. God is yet able to redeem. And he does. And that's the hope. That's the hope of this message today. We'll return there toward the conclusion. Now let's unpack each of these two stories here just, just a little bit further. The Lord here visits Sarah. And, and these, these verbs in this passage um, just fascinated me in this first story. God visits Sarah and he does to Sarah as he had promised. Very simple forthright language. God acts. You know, so a number of years before, God had told them, you're going to have a son. And Sarah laughs. The laugh that she laughs is one of disbelief, one of doubt, skepticism. And God chides her for that. But now God visits and God does to Sarah exactly what he has promised. You can be assured that when God makes a promise, God will visit, God will act, he will do what he said. You can rest securely knowing that what he promises, he is able to perform. And then we find Sarah's responses, and we have some verbs here as well. Sarah conceives. She bears a son, and she nurses a son. Each one of these miraculous in their own right. Conceives at 90, bears a son at 90, nurses a son at 90. 90 years old, but able to do the impossible because of God's provision. When God promises, he also equips. And then we find that Abraham has certain things that he does. The first thing we find Abraham doing is that he names his son. So Abraham is, we might say, in a, in a, in a good phase of his life here. God said, name your son Isaac when he's born. He names his son Isaac. God had told him, circumcise at eight, eight days. He circumcises his son on the eighth day. He's not wasting any time. He's probably laughing the whole way. Yeah, this is just incredible. This is just incredible. But he's obeying God step by step, exactly what God told him to do. And then the last part of this story, we have Sarah, this elderly mother, reflecting on what has just happened. And she does so with laughter. God has made laughter for me. God has caused me to laugh. And it's, it's a laugh of celebration and almost hilarity. But it's a, it's a laughter of healing and blessing and joy. And I want you to note, it's the kind of laughter God brings into the world to this very day when through his marvelous power, according to his promise, he brings healing, restoration, renewal, rebirth, all the good things that God has promised when he brings those in, there is a joy that simply cannot be contained and spills out. Sometimes with laughter. 
And in her reflection, she laughs. She says, it's the kind of thing that anybody who hears this is going to laugh. This is so amazing. And then she says, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? What kind of person would have said, hey, old Abe, your wife's going to have a baby. Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Of course, we know the answer to the question. There's probably only one, only one person who would have said that. And it was God himself. God promised it, and God brought it about. Nobody else would have dared to make that kind of claim. But God did. And I want you to note the parallels here between the promise and birth of Isaac and then in the New Testament, the promise and birth of Jesus. Both were the promised seed and the promised son. Isaac to Abraham, Jesus to the entire world. For both, there was a significant delay between the first announcement of the promise and the final fulfillment of that promise. For Abraham, uh, the timelines are a bit sketchy, but possibly as much as 25 to 30 years passed between the time God first said to Abraham, you're going to have a son through your wife, Sarah, until it finally occurred. Regarding Jesus... We're talking thousands of years from the time first God made the promise in the Garden of Eden that through the seed of woman, the head of the serpent will be crushed. And he reiterated that promise throughout the history of Israel over and over. And there was a significant delay. Notice the responses of the women in both situations. Sarah says, will I really have a child when I am old? God's response to that is anything too hard for the Lord. Mary's response, when the angel comes and announces that she will bear a son, of course, she's very young. But she says, how can this be since I am a virgin? And listen to the words of God. Nothing is impossible with God. Deep parallels both of these, the birth of Isaac and the birth of Jesus, are going to be the miraculous work of God. Both of them had names that were symbolic and given before birth. Isaac, laughter, Jesus, Savior, because he will save his people from their sins. Both of the births occurred at God's appointed time. Uh, just prior to this, God had said to to Sarah, about this time next year, at the appointed time, and it happened, we read, at the appointed time, exactly as God had promised. In regards to Jesus, we find that he would send forth his son when the time was right. And Galatians says, when the fullness of time had come, when the time was right, he was born. Both births were miraculous in the kinds of ways that God's glory was fully put on display. Isaac to an elderly couple well past the age of childbearing, Jesus to a young virgin. Both of them 
were accompanied by celebration. Isaac, the joyous celebration with an aura of amazement in laughter. Jesus, joyful celebration that Mary pondered in her heart and the, the shepherds and angels celebrated publicly. But the second part of the story is the part that is filled with sorrow and pain. And the sorrow and pain is just as poignant as the joy and laughter in the first part. Isaac has survived his infancy. He has been weaned. And again, this was a very fragile time of life. Uh, I read somewhere recently that in the early days of America, particularly in one of the colonies in New England, 75% of the children born did not survive the first two years of their lives. I don't think we're accustomed to thinking in those ways, in those terms, with all the aids of modern medicine. But a similar type of situation was in place at the time of Abraham and Sarah in the wilderness. Many, many, many young children simply died of diseases for which there were no remedies. So when a child was able to be weaned, was able now to eat at the table, there was a great chance of survival. It was a chance, an opportunity, and cause for great celebration. So Isaac has survived, the child of promise has survived, his infancy, entering the next phase of life, and there's cause for great celebration and feasting. But we find here introduced another form of laughter. And laughter is a part of this story as well. And it's Ishmael observing Isaac, the son of promise, and he laughs at him in a mocking, taunting sort of way. It's what the Apostle Paul calls persecution. It's a belittling, deriding laugh. Now, most mothers, I think, observing that, become like mama bears. Okay, you don't want to be the one causing the offense here. That they're going to protect their child. And that's exactly what happens to Sarah. It goes further. She says, Abraham, that woman and her son have got to go. Send them away. Now, just, just consider what's going on here. This was the son whom at one time Sarah had claimed as her own. Likely, this son, Ishmael, was born, as they use the term, on, on Sarah's knees. She had a slave woman, Hagar, she gave to her husband. She did not have children of her own. She gave this slave woman to her husband so that she, Sarah, could have a son through this slave woman. And this was according to the tradition. This is not a far-off, far-fetched idea like it would be today. It was according to the culture and tradition of the day. This was a legitimate way to have an heir if a man's wife was not able to have children. And so Sarah suggests it. Abraham accepts. They have a son. And likely for 14 years... This son, Ishmael, is assumed to be the heir apparent to Abraham. 
And likely, Sarah treats him as her son. Now she's frustrated with the child's mother because she's gotten cocky. Okay, so there's a little bit of trouble there. Now that shouldn't surprise us terribly much either. So there's a problem. But Ishmael is the heir apparent until Sarah gives birth to her own son. And now Ishmael is taunting her young son. And she is livid. Now picture Abraham. Here's a son that he has assumed for 14 years is his heir. He's his son. He's invested in him. He's seen him grow into young manhood. 14. Probably by now, actually, more like 16 or 17. Now, he has likely come to believe that Ishmael is not going to be the heir because Isaac is the son of promise. But he cares for his son. He cares about him, wants a good place for him in the world. He bears his name in many ways. And suddenly his wife, Sarah, comes and says, you have to throw him out. To throw him out. And Abraham is torn in his heart. And he goes to bed that way, torn, not knowing what to do. But God speaks to him that night and basically says, do what your wife tells you to do. So the next morning, Abraham is obedient. He packs some food, prepares a skin of water, goes to Hagar, helps her pack this food on her back, says to Ishmael, here, go with your mother. You have to leave. And he sends them away into the wilderness. Now, we don't know if there's a plan. I think we might assume that Abraham assumes, and likely Hagar assumes, she's going back to her homeland, back to the land of Egypt. That's where she's going to go. But we find that she gets out into the wilderness and apparently gets lost and is wandering, going in circles, making no progress until the son that she gave birth to, son of a wealthy man, is parched and nearly dying with thirst. And this once robust young man, she takes and helps him lie down under the shade of a little sapling. And she can't bear to see it happen, so she goes away, expecting him to die, there in the wilderness, under the blazing sun. Her son! Meanwhile, Abraham likely also feels this incredible loss. But he has, been, he has obeyed. It's a tragic scene. But it says that God hears the cry of Ishmael, speaks to Hagar and says, don't be afraid. I will care for you. There's a well. See it. And he opens her eyes to see it. She takes water from the well, gives it to her son, and his health is restored. Now, this is not, and I want you to note this, this is perplexing to us. This is God taking care 
of a son of the flesh, not the son of promise. What does that say to us about the character of God? Shouldn't he have taken Ishmael and just said, hey, you were trouble from day one. Your dad messed up. We're going to let you die out here. Save the world some trouble. <laughs> it well might have. But no, God said he's the son of Abraham. I'm going to make of him a nation. I'm going to spare his life. I find that to be almost one of the most incredible moments of the story. God sparing the son of the flesh. Now we appropriately ask, so what? Incredible stories. So what? And here's where the Apostle Paul takes this story and said, God is teaching us something about the way we tend to live even as sons of promise, as people of God. We come to faith in Jesus Christ and we trust him for our salvation and we know that there's nothing we bring in our hands that are worthy of our salvation. Nothing that we can stand before God and say, God, listen, I've really done well enough here that you need to save me. None of us come to Christ in that kind of way, ultimately. But rather with the hymn writer, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to you for dress. Helpless, look to you for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the way we come to Jesus. And Paul tells the Galatians, that's exactly the way you came to faith in Jesus Christ. I came and I proclaimed the gospel to you, the good news to you. And you abandoned all your self-efforts and cast yourself completely on Jesus Christ. Now that you are believers, now that you're Christians, now that you belong in the church, what is going on? And to the Galatians, he says, you've gone back to living like sons of the flesh. You've gone back to human scheming. You've gone back to all kinds of human inventions. You've gone back to a very legalistic mindset that says, here's a checklist of things that all people ought to do who love God. And so you're in very legalistic attitudes, checking that off one by one, living according to the law, checking off, well, I went to church on Sunday, and I went to a discipleship group, and I prayed at least five days this week, and I've... You name it. Why are you living like that? The sons that you're giving birth to, the works that you're producing are works of the flesh. They're not works of promise. And it happens so subtly. So subtly. We come to faith in Jesus, and then we try to perfect our salvation through human means human scheming, rather than trusting, resting, relying on the promise of God, living a life of faith-filled, love-infused obedience. And instead, we move back to checklists with legalistic attitudes that mars the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we live as slaves, 
And you know, here's the problem. Some of the things that we do in the flesh are really pretty fantastic. They might look pretty good, be pretty impressive. Because you see, we do bear the image of God. We have those creative capacities. And even in the flesh, apart from the grace of God, living as slaves, there's some pretty incredible things people get done. The problem is the test of fire is coming. And the day will come when the very motivations out of which we have done our works will be exposed. And those works that have been done out of fear, anxiety, lust, and greed, though they looked good, well, the motivations will be exposed and the entire work appears to collapse and be consumed in the consuming fire of the judgment of God. Why? Because we were living in fear. We were living for the pleasure of people. We were trying to check off a legalistic list to please our God. And God looks through it all and says, it wasn't for me, it wasn't a product of my grace in your life. You moved away from grace in those times and places. You bore sons according to the flesh. It has no eternal value. And it will be consumed by the judging fire of God. And you're going to feel the very same loss Abraham felt when his son was sent into exile. No! I gave my life for that. I invested my life in that. And it's all going up in smoke. No! Weeping. Grieving. God in his mercy will reach out and may save you. But your work, gone. Gone in the judging fires of God. And the Apostle Paul invites the Galatians to return to a life of faith-filled, love-infused obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and a single spot, a single place of trusting rest. It's Jesus alone. Only in Him. And you know, to many of our eyes, a work that is done beautifully, we may not know what its motivation is. We may admire it. Trust me, God knows. And he can help you know now. If we're willing to see the greed, the lust, the fear that motivates so many of our actions in the world. If we're willing to let the Spirit of God now shine into our hearts and expose wrong motivations for what appear to be good works. The work isn't bad. It might be good. But it's not a grace-infused work rooted in faith in God, infused with a love toward God and a love toward our fellow man. It's lacking. It's work of the flesh, not a work of the Spirit of God. The Apostle Paul understood this well. Because he said, in, in, again, in one of my favorite passages in his writings, in Philippians 3, 
He said, you know, so I was, I was a legitimate son of Abraham. I was a descendant of Ishmael. And I got this whole list right. And I gloried in it. I was one of those like Isaac, circumcised the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was the purest of the stock of God's people. As to the law, as to God's expectations, I was meticulous. I was Pharisee. Meticulous. As to passion and zeal for God's purposes, I was turbocharged. I was more passionate than anybody else. I got it done with zeal. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Not a charge to be pinned against me. I got it right. And when he encountered Christ, what did he have to do? He had to cast it away. He had to cast it away. Had to cast out the bondwoman with her son. Had to cast him out. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from checking off the list because people are watching but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that rests and depends on faith. That I may know him, that I may know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, become like him in his death, so that if by any means I can attain the resurrection of the dead. Are you a checklist Christian? Or are you born of a free woman living a life of faith and obedience and love because of who Jesus is and of your love to him? Your neighbors may not know your spouse may not know. Though it gets felt. Because checklist Christians are harder to live with. They're more judgmental. They're more critical. They tend to lift the nose as they walk around. Maybe not literally, but there's an aura of superiority. May the grace of God shine into our hearts to expose our motivations so that today we can repent and return to faith and love in Jesus rather than seeing the work of a lifetime consumed in the final fire of judgment. May we today face the loss so that tomorrow we might receive the reward.
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we pause here these few moments before you, we just ask that the searchlight of your word carried by your Holy Spirit would shine deeply into our hearts, deeply into the source of our motivations. Call us to turn away from trusting in all those things that are not of you. To trust in you alone. And then to obey you, a faith-filled, love-infused life of obedience that seeks the advance of the kingdom of Christ, that honors and glorifies Christ. And Lord, we ask you to faithfully and persistently call us to repentance in those areas where we are behaving as sons of flesh. We ask this in Jesus' name.